0: All right, as we head into warmer weather across much of the U.S. in the coming months, one way to stay cool and continue to get a good night's sleep is by checking out Bowl and Branch Bedding and Sheets. They're a brand that we love here at MoNews. News. We only endorse products that we love. And we've been using Bowl and Branch for more than two years now in our home. The sheets have been great, soft, breathable fabric that works for both cold and warm weather. We noticed the quality immediately and have gotten a few different sets in our house. I know Jill has as well. They're made with 100% organic cotton, completely free from toxins. I know that is very important to a number of you, and it's not just sheets. They have blankets, duvets, pillows, a whole variety of products to ensure you get a good night's sleep. And right now, they have a great deal for the Mo News community. Go check them out. I promise you will not be disappointed. Again, they get softer with every wash. So the deal right now is 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONews over at bullandbranch.com. That is bullandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MONews for 15% off. Exclusions do apply. See site for details. Okay, everyone, it's Mo Wanunu, and I'd like to welcome you back to another Mo News conversation. This week, we're going to dive into those remarkable protests we've all been watching in Iran over the course of the last month. I had the opportunity to sit down with Reza Aslan. He has spent years working on issues and writing about his native country. Reza also happens to be a New York Times bestselling author, and he has a new book out on a previous Iranian revolution called An American Martyr in Persia. It tells the story of how a 22-year-old Christian missionary from Nebraska ended up as a commander in the Iranian revolutionary movement back in 1906. Iran has a long and complex history, but there are some really interesting parallels between that revolution and what we see unfolding day by day right now in Iran. I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. Reza and I actually spend most of the conversation talking about what is happening right now on the streets of Tehran and across Iran, what led us to the current revolution, the role of the US. He actually talks about his disappointment in the lack of support for the protesters. He actually calls it absolutely pathetic what he's seeing from the rest of the world right now. We go into scenarios on how this revolution right now can succeed and bring down the regime and also what might cause it to fail. His family incidentally escaped Iran back just before the Islamic regime took over in 1980. So he takes us on his fascinating family journey, Also, his faith journey. He was born a Muslim, converted to Christianity, and then converted back to Islam. We talk about that as well as the state of Islam today, where it is vis-a-vis Judaism and Christianity, the age of each religion, and uh, the various paths they've taken through time. I think you'll find that really interesting, especially since Reza has written some famous uh, best-selling books about God and Jesus. So there's a lot ahead in this edition. Before we get started, a reminder to follow the show on whatever app you're listening to us on. It will ensure you don't miss a single episode. So hit follow or subscribe on your app right now. Also leave us a review if you can. Uh, every review helps us continue to grow the program. With that, here's my conversation on rock. Hey Reza, it is great to have you on today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well, Moshe. Thanks for having me on the podcast.
0: I'm really excited to be speaking with you. I've been a big fan of your work uh, on faith, on history. I've been following you for years. You have a new book out um, about a different Iranian revolution and an American who had a role on it. I want to get to that in a moment, but I want to talk about what we're seeing on the streets of Iran first. Uh, We're now, as we speak, in the fourth week of unrest there. Some are calling it demonstrations. Some calling it protests you have been using the word revolution. Why do you feel these protests are different and should be defined as a revolution?
1: Well, I hate to get all academic about it, but the the factors necessary in order to um, elevate an uprising or a demonstration into what we can say qualifies as a revolution are twofold. Number one, can you expand your coalition beyond the sort of initial uprising, right? So people always talk a lot about the difference between 2009, the Green Movement, and what's happening now. The problem with the 2009 Green Movement is that it never really expanded beyond the kind of middle-class, young, urbanized youth uh, who uh, more or less had these demonstrations in kind of large urban population centers it never expanded to the poor, right? It never expanded to the place where it began to bring in business interests. And so as a result, and in the face of unrestrained violence by the government at the time, it kind of fizzled out. The success of a revolution requires creating coalitions. And while there's no question that the current revolution began as a feminist uprising, and that there's no question that it is still led by women who are bearing their bodies to the bullets of the Revolutionary Guard in order to achieve their most basic human rights. Over the last few weeks, what we have seen is that initial protest began to expand. Certainly, it's included men, but it's also begun to include older Generations, not just the Gen Z, right. that's leading this. Um, and more interestingly, it's begun to pull in more conservative elements in society. We're seeing women dressed in the sort of traditional black chador, the, the the most sort of conservative dress a woman could wear, holding hands with young girls wearing jeans, t-shirts, and whose hairs are completely unveiled. Both of them calling not for reform but for the downfall of the regime that's extraordinary and then secondly it's got to go beyond the sort of major urban centers right because it needs to bring in the working class the pious masses those kinds of those kinds of groups and currently we are seeing these uprisings these protests these sort of violent backlashes against the government take place in a majority of the provinces in Iran, including some fairly conservative uh, provinces. And we're seeing you know, uh, uprisings in, in Mashhad, in Qom. Qom is the kind of religious capital of Iran. And we are seeing massive protests there of people calling for death to Khamenei in Khamenei's backyard. And so right. I was
0: going to say, the, just just for context here, these are the locations where we would expect the people to be most loyal to the regime.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And we're seeing not some massive counter demonstration, you know, uh, not even the sort of fake grassroots ones that the that the government is so good at making.
0: I I, I, I saw they tried that a few weeks ago. The death to America know, signs. So the, pathetic. It's so
1: deal. pathetic. Yeah. yeah. And then everyone everyone sees right through it. So an expanding coalition, disparate interests, disparate grievances, nationwide protests, all united under a single goal. Not, I mean, they all have different goals. They all have different desires. They all have probably different ideas about what should replace the regime. But the idea that they have managed to put all of that of diversity and disparate issues under a single catchphrase, a single goal, down with the regime. Uh, Mm -hmm. That is the recipe for revolution. Now, whether it succeeds or not, we'll see. But I think that insofar as what is required to, to term something truly a revolution, Iran has achieved that in less than four weeks.
0: Let's, let's talk about the why here. You've alluded to it. I mean, these protests sort of officially started over the um, killing of Masa Amini, the 22-year-old uh, woman who was arrested by the morality police, showed up in a coma at the hospital and died. But the grievances run deep, clearly, here. Can you give folks a sense of what people are protesting after these 43 years of rule in Iran?
1: By the way, I, again, not to just be technical here, but- yeah. The protests didn't begin with the death of Massa Amini. It was supercharged by Got the it. death of Massa Amini. What we've been watching happening in Iran for the last six, seven months is these sporadic protests and uprisings taking place around the country by farm workers and factory workers, retirees, school teachers, primarily – against the crumbling economy, the the almost 300% price hikes in foodstuffs over the last six months as a result of the removal of food subsidies, the 50% inflation rate uh, that Iran has been experiencing.
0: Yeah, we we <laughs> hear in no, the right? US complain about an 8, 8% inflation rate.
1: I mean, is I d- d- just w- yeah. 50% is uh, hard to imagine. And the sudden disappearance of, you know, entire retirements. Uh, And so we've been seeing very bloody, very active protests all around the country. They just haven't really caught the imaginations of the outside world because those are complex, you know, economic issues. What the death of Masa Amini did, however, is it supercharged the already sort of roiling dissatisfaction That was in Iran and gave it a face, gave it a a sense of purpose, and in some ways gave it some leadership. Because it's one thing to have old men complaining about their retirement funds, you know, having gone uh, uh, away, having suddenly disappeared. It's another thing to see 13-year-old girls standing in the front of the firing line and saying, I will sacrifice myself for the same freedom that I want, but also for what you're calling for. So, again, I don't want to sort of confuse the issue because it is very important to understand that this is a female-led movement. But Mm -hmm. there was already this kind of foundation of anger and dissatisfaction that was on the ground that allowed this female-led movement to suddenly supercharge into what I'm now referring to as a nationwide revolution.
0: For, for people who aren't that familiar or who are coming into the Iran story now, those images you just mentioned of the 13 year olds standing in front of the firing lines, the images we've seen of schoolgirls um, yelling at uh, government leaders uh, who have come to speak to them, uh, defying the government. Uh, for, for those who live in the West, who live in the US, can you put into terms uh, what courage that takes, uh, how notable that is, how remarkable that is to be seeing the images we are right now from Iran.
1: It's beyond inspiring. You know, I mean, I have I have 11 year old children. Uh, the idea that I could see them, you know, standing in front of uh, soldiers and bearing their bodies, not just to free themselves, but to free their fellow countrymen, it's hard to put it into words. And if America is looking at these images in awe and in confusion, then that's the right response, frankly. It is awe-inspiring and it is confusing. Because I think the thing that's important to understand is that these protesters in Iran are not asking for anything all that complicated, right? They're asking for a say in the decisions that rule their lives. That is about as basic a basic human right as it gets. It's not this sort of complex issue of reforming the economic system, thereby, you know, uh, distributing uh, the the uh, economic gains more widely and making sure that there is, you know, retirement. Funds for uh, older generations. I mean, okay, that's all there, and it's true, but it's very hard to rally around. But let me make my own decision is a very clear message, and that that the clarity of that message is what has allowed it to rise above the din and be heard by everyone around the world. We all get it. We all understand what is being asked for. Um, Again, I would say that's another big difference between today and 2009 is that, you know, the message there was the election was unfair. The election was stolen. And I think a lot of people were saying, well, the elections are always unfair. And and, that's, and I can make an argument about how, no, you know, the, the pre-polling was wrong or whatever the case may be. But what is the argument against leave us alone? Let us make our own decisions. There's no argument against that. And it is precisely the clarity of message here that is the greatest threat that this regime has faced in the last four decades.
0: Let's let's talk about that regime. Um, it, they took power in 1979.
1: Well, 1980. This is a very important thing to clarify because in ni- the 1979 revolution is often referred to as an Islamic revolution, but that's post-revolutionary propaganda. I was there in 1979. The people on the streets were... Marxists and communists, and liberals and progressives, and conservatives and religious folks, but also Jews. There were Christians on the streets. This was again kind of what we're seeing now a wide nationwide coalition focused on a single uh, goal remove the Shah from power. It's just that in post revolutionary Iran, in the chaos of the Iran hostage crisis, in the midst of a war. People forget that a few months after the revolution, Saddam Hussein invaded Iran. In the midst of all of that, the provisional government, this government of you know secular technocrats, collapsed and Khomeini used that moment, that vacuum, to take total control. So Let's not call it an Islamic revolution. It was an anti-imperialist revolution. And let's not say it gave birth to the Islamic Republic. It was hijacked by Khomeini to create the Islamic Republic. And the Islamic Republic happened not in 79, but in 1980. Just, a, just it's an important clarification.
0: Yes, I, I wanted to get to that because I wanted to know what the, the revolution in 79 was selling Mm-hmm. And then what ultimately gets delivered uh, by the folks that hijack it the following year?
1: Yeah, this is, in many ways, the problem of kind of what I was saying before, and and I myself have heard criticisms of it from friends that I that I trust who say okay, sure, disparate coalition, everybody has a different idea about what should come next. And Reza, you're saying, okay, put that all away and focus on the thing that you have in common, which is let's get these Ayatollahs out of government and then we'll figure it out later. And a lot of people have said, yeah, isn't that what happened in 79? We all said, Mm -hmm. we'll figure it out later and look what happened. Yes, that's true. Is that a, a possibility this time? That as with 79, what comes next is worse. Yes, it's possible. But this is a profoundly entrenched regime. And it's going to take a Herculean effort to dislodge them from the positions of power that they've entrenched themselves in. And... I don't mean to be dismissive of the fact that, yes, you will have to figure out what comes later, but I really do feel like right now, what comes later is secondary to the current urgency, which is get these guys out of the halls of government and back to the mosques where they belong.
0: We're looking at a neighborhood where we saw an Arab Spring nearby uh, a little over a decade ago. Uh, and we've seen the results of that—a uh, lot of revolutions, a lot of bringing down or attempts to bring down leaders—with uh, uh, various results in Libya, in Tunisia, in Egypt, uh, re- you know, in particular in Syria, uh, where it went a completely different direction. And so I—I I wonder what lessons have been heeded and and what the fact that there is no kind of prominent leader of this movement, no name that we're attaching to. Um, How how does that make this process more challenging and more difficult, especially when it's like, well, we can do this, but how do we prevent what happened to some of the countries in the neighborhood a decade ago?
1: It's very difficult when you're talking about the individual countries of the Middle East in a collective term, because as you rightly said, the culture, the politics, the history is so vastly different. That right. even in a moment like in 2011, where you saw similar uprisings take place you know, in multiple Arab countries, the results were dramatically you know, different in each, ta- in each case. And I think that the problem here is that Iran has had, for better or worse, <laughs> a century of a vibrant protest culture and an experience, at least in the last four decades, of some expression of representative government. Again, obviously, you know, the representative aspect of Iran's government is tightly controlled and manipulated by um, the clerical regime. But there have been elections, and those elections have had some very little effect, you know, on the lives of Iranians, one way or another. Um, but they, they, they were meaningful differences. And so in a way, you're talking about a population that unlike in Egypt or Syria or Libya, um, already has this kind of innate understanding of what people power can actually achieve when it's united. And so even if what we end up with in these next few months in Iran looks a lot like, you know, the summer of 2011 when these governments began to fall and, and everybody was just kind of trying to figure out what happens next, it's hard to imagine the same kind of descent into an even worse uh, authoritarian uh, experience like in Syria or in Egypt happening in Iran because of that vibrant history of of protest and people power that is almost genetically a part of the Iranian identity again this is by no means you know any kind of guarantee or not making a prediction But I just say that because of that, I feel somewhat more optimistic about the ability of post-revolutionary Iran, if there is going to be a post-revolutionary Iran, assuming there's some success here, um, that the stability that can come out of that, I have a little bit more optimism about than what happened in large parts of the Arab world in 2011.
0: I appreciate hearing that uh, optimism, Reza, because I was just reading an analysis saying, well, uh, I think it was the Institute for Study of War was looking at it like we see a potential Syria-like scenario because the Iranian regime is sort of like Assad and will preserve power no matter what uh, (laughs) with whatever they need to do to the civilians. Uh, And so they were laying out a a Syria-like scenario, which, of course, we've seen a destruction of a country in civil war there for the better part of a decade. Um, and, And your feeling is that Iran's different.
1: Iran's different. I don't think that I don't think that we we're Okay, like if I if I'm going to be pessimistic, let's just let's just say what kind of quote unquote worst-case scenarios look like. Worst-case scenarios, we see Balochistan and Kurdistan uh, call for independence and Iran begins to fracture in the way that we saw in Iraq and in some parts of of Syria. Into de- different ethnic sort of enclaves, right? Um, that 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 would be fairly disastrous. Second worst case scenario: the military in Iran, the Revolutionary Guard, which most Iran watchers will tell you is the real power in Iran. That you know, yes, there is there are the ayatollahs, but that behind the ayatollahs, in the shadow, is the Revolutionary Guard pulling most of the strings, both politically and with uh, foreign affairs, but also economically. I mean, the Revolutionary Guard in Iran is hard for non-Iranians to understand because this isn't the military. Imagine if, like, the, imagine if the military, the FBI, the CIA, and the mafia were one organization. That's the Revolutionary Guard. And they control everything. And the one thing that I think is important to know about the military, and this is true of you know, any, any military anywhere in the world, is that they tend to be highly pragmatic. You know, it's the, the generals care far less about what your hijab looks like than they do about stability and control. Is it possible... That at a certain point, if these protests continue to expand and become bloodier and more out of control, is it possible that the Revolutionary Guard would step in and say something along the lines of, uh, we have heard the cries of the people and we have come to your rescue. Uh, It's time for these mullahs to go back to their mosques. And oh, by the way, we'll need a a, a period of transition here, and mm-hmm. so maybe we'll call you know martial law for a few months, you know, and everybody go home. And but we promise that eventually, you know, we will open up again. Uh, and you have like the Myanmar situation, or say you know uh, the Egypt situation.
0: <laughs> right, CC in Egypt, uh, Pakistan, several iterations. Pakistan, ago. we've seen
1: exactly, this. Yeah. exactly. Is that a is that a possible scenario in Iran? Yes. Is that great for Iran? No. Would those teenagers who are dying on the streets for their most basic rights, would they take Egypt over the Islamic Republic right now? Maybe. Yeah. You know? Would they take Myanmar or Pakistan over? Clerical rule right now, maybe. <laughs> um, the one thing that I will say is, and then, and by no means, people like don't email me. Okay, <laughs> I'm not calling for <laughs> military rule in Iran. What I am saying is, it is a there is an easier path to go from military rule to some kind of representative government than it is to go from religious rule to some kind of representative government. So given the opportunity, given the option, you know, you get two options, right? (laughs) Military rule or clerical rule, which would you take? Obviously, I haven't polled the people on the ground in Iran, but I would guess that the majority of them would say, we'll take military rule right now.
0: It's it, it's it is interesting and we could have a whole separate conversation about various transitions we've seen between mil, you know from military rule to democracy we saw mm-hmm. it particularly in Asia in the in the Singapore's and the South Koreas et cetera. Uh, but but I I want to get back um to you and your story you mentioned it um, earlier you were there in 1979 Reza yeah. I want to talk about your story your family's story you were born there your family fled uh, take us through what happened and and how your family departed Uh, Iran?
1: You know, I came from a fairly middle upper class family, like we owned land. Um, And so I think fairly soon, we realized that this is this was going to be a problem, right for us that that the that whatever the new regime was, it was going to come for us. Um, My father was a uh, you know, a proud, <laughs> he he's passed away, but he was a proud two-day supporter, the Communist Party um, in Iran, which also had a very big role in that revolution and actually formed a coalition with uh, the, the uh, clerical community um, in order to bring the Shah down, only to then be slaughtered <clears throat> by Ayatollah Khomeini as a result. Um, and so I think my father... When Khomeini returned, after the Shah left, and Khomeini returned from exile. And people don't remember this, but, you know, when Khomeini first got to Iran, uh, he made these big speeches about how he has no interest in politics. He has no interest in the government. He just misses his family and his home. He just wants to go back to his, his home and his, and his ministry and be left alone. My father, who never trusted anything anyone wearing a turban said on any topic, uh, heard that and said, bullshit, it's time to go. And I remember very clearly um, being sort of awakened early in the morning and told to get my stuff. And we were amongst the very last uh, to be able to leave Iran before the airports closed down. And I remember the insanity of that airport and I remember very clearly this kind of heartbreaking moment in which trying to get through customs in order to get on that plane and having these custom officials open up our suitcases and rifle through all of our valuables and just take the things that they wanted and I remember my mother complaining and I remember the custom officials saying do you want to stay with them you want to stay with your stuff because you can and so we left with nothing. We left with, you know, a, a suitcase of clothes each and came to America uh, and moved into a one-room motel, you know, watching, and then the, and then the hostage crisis happened, and watching that on our televisions uh, and realizing that, yeah, we were lucky that we, that we got out because the vast majority of my family did not, and indeed they are still there. And, Everything that I do today, forty something years later, every speech that I give, every podcast interview that I do, is predicated on making sure that the family that I left behind um, lives in peace and freedom, and uh, and not under the threat of military war.
0: Are you able to stay in touch with them?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah, we have uh, you know WhatsApp and Instagram and you know. <laughs> texting and all that stuff.
0: What are they able to tell you, though, um, if you can share uh, or not, about what's been going on there in the last couple of weeks, how they feel about it, how, if, having watched this for four decades now, lived this for four decades?
1: I, I'm going to be honest with you and say that um, we rarely talk about it. And I think, you know, the, the people who are in Iran that I speak to, and, and I appreciate this, Oftentimes will just tell me, I just can't, I can't, I can't talk about what's happening right now. I can't talk about what I saw right now. If I, if I talk about it, I'll break down and I just need, I just need a minute, <laughs> right? I just need to be free from it. You know, we have two hours of internet access. I would just like to do something else <laughs> besides yep. focus on the fact that i I'm watching people die in front of me. Um, and I respect that decision. So the, I, I'll be perfectly honest and say that we don't talk about it that much. We're just kind of like, how are you? What's going on?
0: And, and I imagine something that plays into it is just fear of the regime itself too, right? You, you avoid politics because you don't know who you're talking to. You don't know who's monitoring you. And it can get you in trouble.
1: <laughs> I mean, Iran is a police state. Iran is a police state. There's no question about it. I'll tell you a very funny story. The last time I was in Iran was in 2005, and this was after uh, Ahmadinejad was elected. And, you know, Iran, it, it it goes up and down, like, you know, it's like depending on who's in office. And so, oh, I can, I can be a little bit freer in the way I dressed, and nope, now I can't anymore. I mean, before Ibrahim Raisi became president, uh the the sort of so-called morality laws had been very loosely applied for a few years. and I think a lot of Iranians got used to just being able to be a little bit freer with their self-expression. Um, and then a new president shows up and then suddenly it's like, nope, that that's over. Back to you know uh, making sure your hijab is right and all of that stuff. And so it goes up and down. But I remember when I was there in 2005, I was very nervous, you know. I didn't want to. I didn't want to to stick out like a sore thumb, and so I cropped my hair very short, and I grew a beard, um, and I wore kind of you know fairly conservative clothes to quote unquote fit in. <laughs> and I think you know where this is going. Uh, and every time I would get into a cab, you know, they they're shared taxis in Iran. I would sort of get into a cab. Everyone in the cab would freeze and stiffen. And like the cab driver would turn the music down. Uh, I would walk into a cafe and people would fix their hijabs and sort of sit up tall. And I realized... You were confused oh by the morality police. Oh my God, exactly. <laughs> they thought it was me. They thought I was the guy. <laughs> I'm trying my hardest to like avoid that guy. And everyone else thinks I'm that guy. Um, you know, the the absurdity of life for most people in Iran. I mean, God, if it if it weren't so sad and pathetic, it'd be hilarious.
0: And and uh, you know it's it's made for satire. If they allowed satire shows in Iran, not the government, I'm sure, I'm sure there could be some good ones. I imagine the expat community around the world has has created ones. Yes, in inshallah. So uh, one question I have for you: watching um, the reaction by European governments, by the U.S. government, um, knowing that country well, knowing what the um, folks on the ground might need, might want. What have you made of the reaction so far from the West? What are they doing well? What aren't they doing well? How can they best support this revolution?
1: It's a a complicated question. If I were to just sort of say in one word what the international response to the the revolution in Iran has been, the answer would be pathetic, absolutely pathetic. Now, let's break it down a little bit. The American government has no influence in Iran whatsoever. Really nothing else that we could do. We just released some more targeted sanctions against Iranian officials. Good. OK, fine. Nobody thinks that that's going to make any difference whatsoever, because they are already sanctioned, you know, to the maximum uh, ability. Europe has a little bit more influence because, you know, it, it purchases Iranian uh, exports. Um, and so it has the ability to use their purchasing power in order to punish the government for their actions, but I've yet to see any real attempt by the EU to, to do that yet. Unfortunately, the only two you know powers in the world that have actual, real, meaningful influence over the Iranian government are China and Russia, and... <laughs> Russia right now is not listening to anyone, uh, obviously, and China, you know, their whole policy is that we do not interfere in other autocracies because we're an autocracy. Um, So is it possible to, you know, figure out some way to get China to do what is right and actually bring uh, some kind of pressure on the Iranian government? It's not impossible. They did the same during the nuclear negotiations, and without China, that that never would have gone through. But what I'm really annoyed by, what I'm really upset by, is the inaction of the United Nations. You know, just a couple of days ago, the United Nations voted almost universally to condemn Russia's annexation of Ukraine, of parts of Eastern Ukraine. And that's great, good for them. And they've been calling for investigations on Russian human rights atrocities, the the slaughter of civilians, um, uh, war crimes. That's what the UN's job is. But the same thing is happening in Iran right now. (laughs) It's just by its own government. And I've yet to see a similar vote from the United Nations. I've yet to see, and maybe I'm missing it somehow, a call by any of the member states for an international investigation of the human rights atrocities taking place in Iran. The Iranian government has openly and unapologetically announced that it has detained hundreds of teenage girls and sent them to what they call psychological camps for re-education. That is a crime against humanity that they are openly admitting and I have yet to see a call by the United Nations, or by the ICC even, to say, that is a crime against humanity, there will be a price to pay, and we are calling for investigations on the ground in Iran right now. So, yeah, it's, I, the answer is it's been anemic.
0: But if they did that, the regime doesn't care. I mean, we've, we're not surprised. The UN has been pretty toothless for going back several decades now. Um, Does that matter? Do statements like that matter?
1: Here's one thing that's, I think, very important to understand about the uh, Iranian regime, which is that it may seem like they are impervious to outside pressure, right? Because they they act that way. But four decades has shown us that that's not the case. That when there is global pressure on Iran, I mean, we just discovered this a little while ago, Iran didn't want to give up its nuclear program, but the outside pressure forced it to. When we are united as a globe, right, and especially when we can get the uh, the uh, UN Security Council, the weight of the UN Security Council, um, It does matter. Like, again, I'm not saying that the UN is going to wag its finger at Iran and Iran is going to suddenly crumble. What I am saying is that we cannot deny the fact that the UN can influence Iran's behavior. It's done it in the past, and it can now. And even if that were not the case, let's just say, even if, you know, the Ayatollahs just thumbed their nose at the UN – that kind of global solidarity is an invaluable message not just to the rest of the world who's watching Iran and trying to figure out exactly what's going on but it's an invaluable message to those revolutionaries themselves who are desperate to make sure that the world hears them that the world is on their side and we need the united nations we need a, a, a vote count we need we need every one of those 190 whatever countries to stand up and raise their hand? Are you with the Iranian people or not? And that hasn't happened yet.
0: All right, let's, let's talk about your book, which takes us back not to the 79 revolution, not to the 53 revolution, but back to 1906. Where it all and started. <laughs> where it all started. The, the first of what I guess appears to be now four revolutions over the course of just over a century. Um, the book is American Martyr in Persia and you tell the story of a 22-year-old American missionary from Nebraska who ends up in Iran. How did he get there, and who is Howard Baskerville?
1: Howard Baskerville is a 22-year-old Christian missionary from Nebraska. Um, He graduates from Princeton uh, with a degree in Christian ministry in 1907 and is expected to just go back to South Dakota where his family was living and to take up the profession of his father and grandfather, which is just to become a Presbyterian country preacher. But he has a different idea. He wants to experience the world. He wants an adventure. And back then, the only way that a 22-year-old Christian, you know, from the Black Hills of South Dakota, could possibly have a global adventure uh, is to become a missionary. And so he applies uh, with the Presbyterian Board of Foreign Missions uh, to go abroad. He desperately wants to go to China and Japan. That's where he says that, you know, God is calling him, but the Presbyterian board has a different plan for him, and they send him to Persia um, and in order to do, quote, the Mohammedan work, which is... To convert Muslims to Christianity—that's his job, and to—and his other job, of course, uh, uh, along with that, is to teach. You know, he has to actually go there, and, and he gets a job at the missionary school in the city of Tabriz, where he teaches English and history, American history, and he arrives in the middle of, as you say, the first democratic revolution in the Middle East. A few years earlier. Um, Almost the same kind of coalition right that brought brought revolution to Iran in 53 and '79, a coalition of young zealous revolutionaries backed by business and economic groups and buttressed by um, the uh, the clergy, the sort of the mid-level clergy in Iran and, and the, who, who brought out the pious masses right uh, onto the streets demanded from the Shah the creation of a constitution that would lay out the rights and privileges of all Iranians, and a parliament, an elected parliament, that would have the ability not just to pass legislation, but to curb the unchecked powers of the Shah, the king of Iran. They get those things in 1906, but then uh, the Shah who signs the constitution dies, and his son, who succeeds him, uh, tears up the constitution, rolls cannons to the parliament building and destroys it with the parliamentarians inside and declares war on the revolutionaries. And what began as a revolution quickly becomes a civil war, one that the Shah wins, (laughs) essentially. He manages to reconquer almost the whole of the country uh, for the crown, except for the city of Tabriz, which becomes sort of the last bastion of the revolutionary mo- movement, and this is when Howard Basketball suddenly arrives in this town. Um, and it takes a while; he's there for a good year, and he's being told constantly to mind his own business. That you know the politics of the situation are not his business. Uh, his job is to save souls. He, he's an American, and he can have no uh, you know direct. Um, participation in a foreign nation civil war, which is how it was referred to then. But, you know, Baskerville, because of a series of sort of remarkable things that, that happen and experiences that he has and and and, and uh, horrors that he witnesses, uh, eventually gives up his teaching position, abandons his missionary post, um, and even uh, gives up his American citizenship and joins the Iranians in this revolution against the Shah and ends up dying in that cause. And he's widely considered to be sort of a hero and a martyr of that revolution. Um, though in, since the 79 revolution, his name has pretty much disappeared from Iranians' collective memories. And And this biography that I've written about him is an attempt to change that, not just to remind Iranians of this American hero But to introduce him to Americans in the first place, because while he may have been forgotten about in Iran, he was never remembered in America to begin with. And and it's just a shame, especially right now, because he's such a he's such a reminder to us all of what Iranians and Americans have in common with each other. And he's a reminder to us all of the responsibilities that we in the privileged world have uh, to actually reach out and do something. Uh, when people around the world are dying for the rights that we ourselves take for granted.
0: Yeah, you know, I, at admission, I feel like I'm a student of history. Uh, I'm a journalist. I've covered a lot of these issues. And this is the first I'd heard of Howard Baskerville and, yeah. and his story. You and everybody else, um, man.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and 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 you have said every American and Iranian should know his name. Uh, you mentioned prior to 79 that schools throughout Iran were named after him. Um People were aware of him. You were familiar with him. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Typically, I would think that an American missionary coming to a place like Persia to convert Muslims to Christianity would not be viewed fondly. That person (laughs) would not be uh, embraced. (laughs) Tell me about him and and how is it that, yes, I've come here to convert you to Christianity. How, How do you go from there to him being a, you know, a a leader in this rebel movement alongside some of the people he was trying to convert.
1: Well, the first thing that's important to understand is that the mission that he joined in Tabriz had been there for, I want to say like 50 years by that point, you know, or something like that. Yeah. Around. Yeah. That's about right. About 50 years. Um, The school that he had come to teach had been part of Tabriz for you know a couple of decades and the tabrizis are an incredibly diverse people right it's there are persians there and turks and azeris and and it's a religiously diverse city it's you know historically been the crossroads of of you know trade routes it, it's it's smack dab in the heart of the old silk route and so there was a lot more kind of tolerance for uh, Christian missions. There was a Catholic mission there too. Uh, actually, later on, there was a, a fairly uh, um, uh, successful Mormon mission in Tabriz as well. It's like, Tabriz is one of those towns that, that you know, uh, foreigners and Westerners especially could feel at home at. But also, you know, the missionaries there had spent decades building schools and building hospitals and feeding the people and caring for the people. And so they had amassed a good amount of goodwill, Um, which, by the way, was one of the reasons why they were adamant about not taking part in this revolution. Not because they didn't sympathize with the revolutionaries. They did. They absolutely saw the situation clearly for what it was. They understood that the Shah was the villain in this story. And they absolutely understood that the revolutionaries were asking for basic rights that were their God-given right. It's just that they couldn't do anything about it, right? They couldn't insert themselves into this conflict because they're there to save souls and not lives. And also because, you know, they had spent decades uh, maintaining a kind of neutrality when it comes to, you know, Persian politics, precisely so that they could earn the goodwill that they had used. And so... That was a big advantage for Howard Baskerville, right? You know, when he showed up as a missionary in Tabriz, the response wasn't immediately, "Oh, a guy who's here to, you know, to convert us." It was, "Oh, yeah, one of you guys, you <laughs> know, great, good for you." You know, mm-hmm. but whether he was very successful as a missionary, I have found nothing to indicate that he was. Um, frankly, I think the the mission in Iran had far more success converting. Persian Christians to American Christianity uh, than it did converting any Muslims to American Christianity, which, by the way, was technically illegal at that time anyway, Um, though, of course, it it did happen. But I think at the same time, that goodwill is what made so many Persians confused that here they are being slaughtered by this tyrant for asking for what? Freedom? (laughs) The ability to actually have a, a say in the government? And they were asking for America to help. They were asking the American missionaries there to help. And the answer was, we sympathize, but it's not our business. And so When this one American missionary said, I I can't ignore this anymore. I can't ignore the suffering that I'm watching in the streets anymore. He was not just welcomed into the revolutionary uh, army, but he was elevated to command status, despite the fact that he had absolutely no military training mm-hmm. there's there's some there's some confusion about whether he himself had ever gone through any kind of military training but i've seen no evidence of it you know he he's 22 years old
0: you know he's a 22 year old missionary from nebraska and now he's commanding troops and he's literally um,
1: commanding Russia. troops yeah and i think yeah. you know let's be let's be perfectly frank i think that the revolutionaries understood this for what it was which was a massive propaganda boon for them there were articles you know, in the London Times and in the New York Times, headlined, American defends Tabriz. That's exactly what the revolutionaries needed.
0: You know, it's it, the metaphor isn't perfect here, but I'm having visions of uh, Kevin Costner and Dances with the Wolves as uh, Tom Cruise and Last <laughs> Samurai, all variations on this theme. You've had your own journey with faith, which is, I you know, I find interesting to talk about in the context of Baskerville, uh, a missionary. You, you know, you were uh, born um, a Muslim you converted to Christianity you then convert back to Islam um, how does that how does your journey there through faith um, impact how you tell these stories
1: I think I have not just you know an academic knowledge of faith and religion and and the interplay of them in in the world and and how people use religion to express their uh, aspirations and their politics for good and for bad. But I also have a personal experience of it, you know. I used to be a Christian, and I used to be Shia. I'm neither of those things now. But it makes me really understand what those two religions have in common with each other. And so when it comes time to place a Christian like Baskerville in the midst of a Shia revolution like 1906 it's very clear to me why those two worked you know it's very clear to me how how it was that someone like Baskerville who came from a completely different faith tradition was able to integrate into the very ideology of this revolution to become one you know near the end of his life baskerville very famously says i am persia's and I get what he means by that because having been a Christian and having been a Shia, I see the the sort of linkages that would allow him to make that kind of statement. And I hope that that is reflected in the book. You know, I've tried to really transform this kid into a living, breathing human being and really help people understand what his motivations were why he did what he did what he ma- what he could have been thinking you know in making these uh, incredible decisions and it has really allowed me i think to write this story in a way that comes alive and makes sense to people you know even though it's a a story that took place 115 years ago
0: looking looking at the role of faith here um, on a macro scale, you you have a PhD, you've studied religion uh, your whole life, written multiple uh, bestsellers about it. The last, you know, as you look at the last couple of millennia, it's a constant struggle between separation of church and state. Sometimes the church was the state. Um, uh, you know, you have this here in the US, we struggle with it. In Europe, there's this kind of move towards over-secularization. Uh, Iran, clearly we're seeing it. And No matter where you go, Turkey, Israel, no matter the faith, uh, wherever you go in the world, there's this constant back and forth. Um, is it a pendulum? Is it a progression? Is it an evolution um, in terms of how do, you, how do those things continue to kind of coexist? What is the proper balance? Who has it right? And maybe there is no right here.
1: I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer to this, but I will say this. It begins by understanding what religion actually is. Religion isn't just a matter of beliefs and practices although those things are important. Religion is a form of identity. When someone says, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jew, I'm a Muslim, they're not making a faith statement. They're making an identity statement. And as a part of your identity, it's wrapped into all the other markers of your identity, including your nationalism, your politics, your your social or economic position, your gender, your sexual orientation. And so religion is whatever you make it to be because we're all different. And so It's it's an ever-present ideology, and yes, you're right, it's constantly changing because we're constantly changing, but it's always going to have a role in human society. Whether that role is positive or negative has far less to do with religion itself than it does with we, human beings, and how we integrate religion into our already preconceived ideas about the workings of the world. Religion is what a religious person makes of it. Religion doesn't exist in a vacuum.
0: And one other question I had for you. I hope okay, let's do
1: this because I really—they're they're knocking. They're
0: literally knocking on my hotel oh. door. <laughs> Islam is the youngest of the Abrahamic faiths. The Jews—I just know this—we celebrate Rosh Hashanah. We're fifty-seven hundred and eighty-three years old. Christianity—we're two millennia. Islam is just over fourteen hundred years old. As you've studied this, are there trend lines uh, as the youngest faith? Uh, when it comes to faith? Where is Islam right now um, on that pendulum? Are they following the trajectory that you've seen with other faiths, or is it hard to compare these things?
1: It is hard to compare these things, though I will say that all religious, uh, all major religions go through moments of uh, reform in which what is fundamentally at stake is who gets to define this thing. So yeah, in the, you know, 5,000 plus years of Judaism, there was a moment in which Judaism became something completely different in 70 AD, right? The temple is gone, and this is no longer a religion of temple and priesthood and sacrifice. So then what is it? Who has the authority anymore in this religion? And we have the birth of what we now call rabbinic um, Judaism, or frankly, just Judaism. now. <laughs> um, you look at christianity right there is a moment in the 14 uh, uh, 15th century 15th and 16th century in which there is this crack where the the idea that there are only a few people who get to define what this faith is begins to crumble and everyone gets to kind of have their own interpretations and we call that the protestant reformation or whatever but now all of a sudden you have this religion that had maybe two or three branches fracture into thousands of different branches and interpretations. A similar thing has been taking place in Islam for much of the last hundred years in which the traditional religious authorities who have for centuries maintained a monopoly over the meaning and message of Islam have begun to fracture. And individuals are now coming to the religion on their own and interpreting it through their own Lens without the need of some outside authority. And so we are seeing the same kind of fracturing in Islam into hundreds of different schisms and interpretations that we saw in Christianity. Where does this go? I mean, you know, who knows? But I think there is a kind of trend line that global religions do experience. And I do believe that we are sort of in the midst of one of those kind of major moments in Islamic history, where the very understanding of not what the religion means, but who gets to say what it means, is being uh, kind of redefined, if you will.
0: Reza, thank you so much. I wish you incredible luck with the new book, uh, An American Martyr in Persia. And uh, if the folks at the hotel in Philadelphia charge you a late fee, you can send them my uh, Venmo.
1: (laughs) Oh, I'm going to. I'm definitely going to. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Thank you, Moshe.
0: That was such a fun and interesting conversation with Reza. By the way, we recorded that last Friday as he was checking out of a hotel in Philadelphia. He was actually scared because we kept talking that uh, they were knocking at their door and they were going to charge him a late fee for a late checkout. Turns out we're okay, or at least I haven't seen a Venmo request from him yet. But Reza, if you're listening uh, and they charged you, I will cover whatever expenses. Uh, you were charged because you took so long uh, and spent so much time with us and I'm grateful for that. A reminder that you can get Reza's new book, American Martyr in Persia, wherever you get your books. Don't forget to follow this show and review us in the app store. Tell your friends about this podcast. Really appreciate all of you continue to spread the word. You can also get your updates directly to your email. Uh, Sign up for the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com and you can follow me on Instagram, of course, at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. I'll see everyone back here for the next Daily edition.